Chapter 7 of The Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Shepworth Explains. An unsteady footstep roused Lord Prelice from his momentary stupor, and he wheeled automatically to see a little man, masked and wearing a black silk domino, swaying to and fro at the open dining room door. But the sight of the two apparently dead men and the presence of their possible murderer seemed to sober the newcomer in a single moment. Before Prelice could spring forward, he gasped and fled. Almost immediately his voice, tense with terror, was heard shouting the news of his discovery to the revelers on the stairs. Prelice cursed under his mustache and ran into the passage to close the outer door, which he now remembered he had foolishly left ajar. Possibly the little man, being intoxicated, had stumbled up the stairs on his way to the ball, and finding the door open, had so far mistaken his way as to stagger in. Prelice wondered if the stranger was Haken or Rover, both small of stature, but he recollected that he had never seen either drunk. Besides, drunk or sober, Rover or Haken would never mistake Shepworth's flat for the one overhead. At the outer door, Prelice swiftly changed his mind. He saw that the murder of the red-headed man was similar in all respects to that of Sir Oliver Lanwin. Then Miss Chint had been given time to recover, and so had been accused of the crime, although she protested that she had been in a state of catalepsy induced by the scented smoke. Shepworth likewise was insensible, and judging from the odor in the dining room, from the same cause. It would be better, decided the young man rapidly, that Shepworth should be seen by a score of witnesses thus insensible, for then it could be proved that so helpless a man could not have struck the blow. Thus, when a crowd of startled people came pouring down the staircase and into the flat on the second floor, Prelice threw open the door widely and admitted them with a hurried explanation. There has been a terrible crime committed, he declared, leading the way to the dining room. I came here a few minutes ago to find Mr. Shepworth, the owner of the flat, insensible as you see, and this other man stone dead. He has been stabbed. Stabbed! Several voices echoed the word, and one woman gave a faint scream. The passage was crowded to the very door of the dining room, and as many as could were looking over one another's shoulders to view the sinister scene, and like a ball from one person to another was tossed in various tones the ominous word, Murder! Who stabbed the man? asked a medium-sized masker in a blue domino, who had placed himself directly in front of the mob, blocking the doorway. He addressed Prelice, and his manner was offensively suspicious. I do not know, disclaimed that young gentleman quietly, for it seemed absurd indeed that he should be suspected. I came here to see Mr. Shepworth only ten minutes ago. How did you enter? The tone of question was still offensive. The outer door was slightly ajar explained the other suavely. I pushed it open, as I had an appointment with my friend. I declined to defend myself further, as you seem to suspect me. 
Send for the police, send for the police, said many voices, and a rough male voice was heard recommending that Prelice, only the voice called him the murderer, should not be allowed to escape. What nonsense, cried the young man indignantly, raising his voice on hearing so direct an accusation. I have nothing to do with the matter. I am Lord Prelice, if anyone here knows me. The utterance of a title had a magical effect, and several people began to unmask. Amongst these was the aggressive masker who had questioned Prelice. "'You can explain to the police,' said this man sharply. "'Certainly, Captain Jadby. You know me? I saw you in court today, and also in Jetty's restaurant, Burn Street.' Jadby nodded, but did not relax his suspicious manner. "'It is strange that you should be here,' he said, marching into the room. "'Not at all,' rejoined Prelice hotly. "'I had an appointment to see Mr. Shepworth, and came only a few minutes ago.' Jadby took no notice of this speech, but lifted the shaggy red head of the dead man. Apparently he knew who he was, for after a single glance he dropped the heavy head again, and wheeled round with an amazed face. "'Steve Agstone!' he gasped. The missing witness. Prelice also startled, backed against the wall with outstretched hands and open mouth. In a flash he saw how dangerous was the position of the barrister, and indeed many confused voices were muttering as to the guilt of Shepworth. Captain Jadby, letting his eyes fall on the dead man, made himself spokesman for all. Shepworth murdered him to win the case, he said, nodding. I ask your pardon, Lord Prelice, for suspecting you. I would rather you continue to do so, cried Prelice angrily. It is absurd to think that Shepworth killed this man. Look at him. He pointed to the rigid form in the armchair. He is incapable of raising a hand. Miss Chint was also incapable, sneered the captain. Yet... She is innocent, stormed Prelice fiercely. She no more killed her uncle than did Shepworth, this witness. Everyone was listening eagerly with open eyes and ears to the altercation, and it is impossible to say how long it would have continued but for the entry of the police. Two constables pushed their way through the crowd and forthwith, when they had taken in the situation, began to clear the place. The crowd of pleasure-seekers, now unmasked for the most part, were driven outside. Some fled down the stairs, anxious to get away from the scene of the tragedy, while others returned to the rover's flat. But the fact of the murder ruined the ball. It broke up, like Macbeth's famous banquet, with most admired disorder, and in ten minutes the rooms were deserted. Everyone ran away as though from the plague, and Mr. Rover, looking like a frightened rabbit, came down to make inquiries. Is Shepworth dead? He asked tremulously of a stalwart policeman whom he found guarding the closed door of number 40. Everyone says that Shepworth is dead, and my wife has fainted. The doctor is with Mr. Shepworth now, said the constable gruffly. I don't know what's the matter with him, and it ain't my duty to say anything, sir. Oh, dear, oh, dear, Rover wrung his small white hands. How very, very dreadful all this is. Who is the other man, the dead man? He handed the officer half a sovereign as to gain a reply. Dogberry unbent. 
They do say, sir, as the corpse is Steve Agstone, who is the missing witness in the Lanwin murder case. How wicked! How very wicked! But if Mr. Shepworth is dead... He ain't, sir. The constable slipped the gold into his pocket. He's in a faint of sorts, I believe, and they do say as he killed Steve Agstone so as to save the young lady he's defending. Now, I can't tell you more, sir, and I've said too much already. Just go home and keep quiet, sir. The police will look after this matter here. Rover, still wringing his useless hands and muttering to himself like the weak-brained little man he was, wearily climbed the stairs to his deserted ballrooms. As he ascended, two women and a man came down, white-faced and shaken. They tried to enter number 40, but the constable stretched forth a brawny arm to prevent entrance. But we must come in, said the man, deferentially. We are Mr. Shepworth's servants. I'm his valet. This lady is the cook, and yonder is the housemaid. We have a right to enter. You can't until the doctor and the inspector have done with your master, said the constable stolidly. And why aren't you in bed? The cook, a large, red-faced lady, gaily dressed, replied, Mr. Shepworth allowed us to join Mrs. Rover's servants at the masked ball. Then none of you were in this flat when the murder was committed? questioned the policeman, doing a little detective business on his own account. Oh, Lord, no, cried the housemaid timidly. We've been upstairs since nine o'clock helping Mrs. Rover's servants with the party. Do let us in, Mr. Policeman. Stay where you are until orders come, commanded the officer sternly, and the trio sat disconsolately on the stairs. With the instinct of self-preservation, they had thoroughly explained their absence from the scene of the crime and now felt perfectly safe. Meanwhile, in the dining room, a young medical man, who had fortunately been present at the ball, was reviving Shepworth with brandy and ammonia. The windows had been thrown open, and the fresh air was filling the room so rapidly that scarcely a trace of the two bros' fragrance remained. Prelis, having laid aside his mask and domino, was standing near the door with his hands in his pockets, watching a man in uniform, who examined the dead along with the official doctor whom the police had called in. The first individual was Inspector Burge a keen-looking, sharp-eyed man with a clean-shaven face and closely clipped gray hair, and an abrupt red-tape manner. Captain Jadby was not present, having departed with the rest of the two curious onlookers, but Lord Prelice remained, as he had been the first to discover the crime, and Burge wished to hear his account of it. Already the inspector's notebook was in his hand to note down the result of the official doctor's examination. There was a dead silence in the room, faintly broken by the distant roll of vehicular traffic with the occasional hoot of a motor horn. The bell of a near church boomed out midnight so unexpectedly that Prelice jumped. He might well be excused for doing so, as his nerves were considerably shaken. Twelve o'clock, said Burge crisply. When did you discover the crime, my lord? At half-past eleven, replied Prelice, shivering. Good heavens! Is it only half an hour since then? It seems like years. 
"'We were on the spot in ten minutes,' said Burge with official satisfaction, "'and haven't been long in getting things shipshape. "'Now that these ladies and gentlemen have gone, we can look into matters, doctor.' "'He glanced at the young man attending Shepworth. "'Is your patient reviving?' "'A trifle,' answered the other, rising. "'Help me to place him near the window, in a draft. "'It is a long faint,' said the inspector, "'helping to wheel the armchair to the open window.' It is not a faint at all. The man is in a cataleptic state, induced by the administration of some drug. Induced by the odor of a burning herb, you mean, said Prelice, looking at the rigid face of Shepworth, which was as expressionless as that of the dead man at the table. What's that? questioned the inspector, turning his head. Prelice waved his hand. I'll explain later, and after I have seen my friend Dr. Horace. Horace? Horace? The medical man who was examining the corpse looked up at this remark. I know him slightly. A great traveler, isn't he? Yes, answered Prelice quickly. He traveled with me to a little-known part of the world called Easter Island. Lucky that he did so, and that I was with him. Between us, we may be able to solve the mystery of this cataleptic business. You know that it is catalepsy induced by some odor? Of course I do. I have seen a man in that state before. And Prelice pointed to the rigid form of Shepworth. Where? asked Burge, looking at him with keen eyes, somewhat puzzled. On Easter Island. The inspector would have asked further questions when the elder doctor rose from examining Agstone's body and stretched himself. Well, Thornton, he asked curtly. The man is dead right enough, said Thornton with a shrug. That stab under the left shoulder blade reached the heart at one blow. I don't see the weapon with which it was committed. The crime, I mean. We haven't searched the flat yet, rejoined Burge brusquely. And if you remember, Thornton, the weapon which killed Sir Oliver Lanwin was not found either. What has this case to do with Sir Oliver Lanwin's death? Burge looks surprised. Don't you read the papers, Doctor? There is a murder case on at the New Bailey which resembles this in every particular. Sir Oliver Lanwin was stabbed seated at his desk and under the left shoulder blade. His niece, who is accused, says that she is innocent and was in a cataleptic state, just as this counsel of hers is. What we see here, mused Burge, will go a long way towards helping her to prove her innocence. Mr. Shepworth need not have got rid of Agstone in this way. He didn't, cried Prelice sharply. I'll stake my existence that Mr. Shepworth is perfectly innocent. My lord, we know that the prosecution hoped to convict Miss Chent on Agstone's evidence. It was necessary that the defense should keep him out of the way. And here is the man, very forcibly removed, and in the rooms of the young gentleman who is not only helping to defend Miss Chent, but who is her a financed husband. It looks strange. Prelice pointed to Shepworth, who now showed signs of reviving. I say to you, as I said to those people who burst into the flat when the alarm was given, that Shepworth is incapable of lifting a hand. Ah, uh, but we don't know how long he has been incapable, said Burge cunningly. 
When was Agston murdered, doctor? Thornton, who was twisting a cigarette, answered promptly enough. I should say, judging from the condition of the temperature of the body, sometime between ten and eleven o'clock. And can you tell, asked the inspector, turning to the other doctor, how long Mr. Shepworth has been insensible? No, said the young physician promptly, but he'll tell us himself soon he is coming round. Even as he spoke, Shepworth opened his eyes and stared vaguely at those in the room. His gaze wandered in a bewildered manner from the inspector to Prelis and from Prelis to the two doctors. Finally, he looked meditatively at the dead body, which was stretched right across the blue cloth of the dining table, with its glassy eyes staring at the ceiling. A shudder shook the barrister's frame, and as though moved by wires, he sprang stiffly to his feet. Prelis, Prelis, he cried, and his voice grew stronger as his strength came back, as did his color and senses. Look, look! Isn't it the same as in Grange Library? Agstone is dead, and I have been in a trance. You know, then, asked Burge swiftly, that the dead man is Agstone? Yes, I have seen him many times at the Grange. But how did he come here? Who murdered him? And his eyes questioned those present dumbly. That is what we wish to ask you, said the inspector. Shepworth passed his hand across his forehead, which was now moist with perspiration. The police, he murmured, and Agstone dead. Will you place me in the dock beside Mona? He asked Burge passionately. Prelis sprang to his side and caught him by the hand. Ned, Ned! he urged. Pull yourself together, and tell us how Agstone came to be murdered in this room. I can't tell you, cried Shepworth, wrenching away his hand. I can tell you no more than Mona could. She was in a trance and saw nothing, only coming out of it to find the dead beside her. I was in a trance and saw— Ah! he broke off, and his wild eyes went roving round the room. Where is the woman? "'What woman?' asked Burge suddenly, and kept his eyes on Shepworth's face with a look of severe scrutiny. "'The woman who came in, masked and cloaked. She came in. Agstone admitted her. She waved the bronze cup before me, and then I—I—oh, what does it all mean?' he asked, breaking down, and with every reason considering what he had undergone. Prelis shook him gently by the shoulders. I am beside you, Ned. I am looking after you. Only tell us everything you remember. Shepworth stared straight before him, and then, as though a spring had been touched, he began to speak swiftly and coherently. I was sitting reading in the drawing-room when I heard three heavy blows struck on the wall of this room. As my servants were all upstairs assisting at the ball, I wondered who was in my flat and came out to inquire. The door of this room was closed, and I opened it to find a thick white smoke smelling sweetly and sickly, curling from a bronze cup placed on the table. The fumes choked me, and I staggered instinctively to the open window. Before I could reach it, I fell. Senseless? interpolated Thornton keenly. No, 
Shepworth turned irritably. How could I be senseless when I heard and saw everything? Up to a point, that is. What did you see? questioned Burge eagerly. I could move neither hand nor foot, nor could I call out, went on Shepworth slowly, and I lay on the floor, half propped up against that chair. Then I saw, he shuddered, a large, hairy hand push aside the tablecloth, and shortly a man crawled from underneath. It was Agstone, for I recognized him without difficulty. He growled in a pleased manner and lifted me into this chair. Then he went out and remained absent for some time. When he returned, a tall woman was with him, wearing a mask and a green domino. Taking the bronze cup from which the white smoke still poured, she waved it under my nose. My senses left me, and I knew no more until I woke to find you all in my room. And Agstone is dead, ended the barrister, trembling. Agstone is dead. And Agstone, said Burge significantly, is the chief witness for the prosecution. End of chapter 7